0: Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us, and we are at the first location on our Pacific Northwest tour, and we have a live studio audience. Okay, you can go back to eating now and talking, drinking and doing all the things, all the stuff you do. Anyway, I'm, I'm with my friends uh, Tom and Glenn, and I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a, I'm a pastor here in the Pacific Northwest. I serve a church in Vancouver, Washington, and. Uh, I've written a few things, and we're really excited to be together again because uh, we only see the little square boxes of our faces online in, in the last few months because we're in different locations and everything. But anyway, that's enough about me. Why don't we kick it over to you, Glenn, and introduce yourself.
1: I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired professor of Reformation history. I currently am a ministry associate with Reflections Ministries, a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and I have a ministry myself called Every Square
2: Inch Ministries. Great. Good stuff. Tom? Uh, um, Tom Price. I teach systematic theology and uh, Christian ethics. I teach at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, uh, University of St. Joseph, and a few other places. And I'm grateful to be here in the presence of you fine people. So uh, thanks for having me along. Yeah, and and, uh, uh,
0: it's really a lot of fun for us to do this because uh, it's always a surprise to us You know, when we actually meet human beings who listen to us. Because when we first started the show, we didn't think it would amount to anything. (laughs) You know, we were just meeting in a little pub and we were trying to figure out what are we going to do now that our theology pub, which was kind of like a theology on tap thing that we did once a month, and it was how we all got to know each other. Now that we can't meet anymore because the pub we were meeting in had sold, what are we going to do? And uh, anyway, we said, why don't we do a little podcast and see if maybe that's a way we can keep in touch with the folks there in Connecticut, who were a part of things that we, you know, that we were doing with that Theology Pub event, uh, sort of program. And uh, next thing you know, we're discovering, we discover that hundreds and hundreds and then thousands of people are downloading our shows. And it was a complete surprise to us. And we've come to learn that we have like a global audience now. We have people all over the world who listen in on every show, and we're just dumbfounded because uh, we take each other for granted and we don't think of ourselves very highly. (laughs) (laughs) We're humble, lowly folk. (laughs) That's right. But anyway, uh, so we're here. We've got, uh, for those folks out in podcast land, uh, someday we'll have this stuff on our website. But for the folks who are here, if you're interested in a really ugly T-shirt, you can get one of our ugly T-shirts with our ugly faces on it. It's a uh, Cerberus-inspired T-shirt. Uh, a three-headed pug and then we've got some glasses uh with our our, our logo on it anyway you can talk to my son Caleb who actually is the man behind the scenes at every show and he is out here for uh the uh, at least uh first few days in the tour and uh you can talk to him about that because he manages all the stuff behind the scenes if we didn't have Caleb there would not be any show at all (laughs) (laughs) so anyway uh well, uh, it's your show, Tom. We're going to be talking about something that was written by a friend of mine, Lou Marcos. And, in fact, the second show is also you know, going to be something we're going to talk It's Glenn's show. And we're going to talk about something that uh, Lou wrote. But tell us about uh, what we're talking about today. Okay, but maybe first you should tell us a little about Louis Marcos. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, Louis, he teaches at uh, Houston Baptist uh, University down, obviously, in Houston. And uh, he uh, is really... Uh, a marvelous author. I think he's got maybe a dozen books published, and uh, he's a regular contributor to some publications that we love, uh, one of those being Touchstone. Mm -hmm. And uh, in fact, these articles are coming out of Touchstone. Uh, If you really want to have a, 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 you know, a a, a sort of a reading experience Mm -hmm. that sort of introduces you to some of the best thinkers, uh, not only in, you know, just sort of like the evangelical world, but also people who are writing from a, an Orthodox perspective, I mean, Eastern Orthodox and Catholic perspective, who all have certain commitments in common, mainly, you know, orthodoxy, which is fairly important, yeah. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, socially conservative uh, ethics and outlook. Touchstone is, the, is the, the magazine for you. And Touchstone is one of those uh, magazines that punches way above its weight. I mean, Supreme Court justices read Touchstone. Uh, you know, some of, you know, government leaders uh, in different parts of the world read Touchstone. And uh, I've been privileged to speak at one of the conferences sponsored by Touchstone and write for Touchstone. And Lou is a guy uh, that's, uh, you know, obviously he's a Baptist. He teaches at uh, Houston Baptist. But he you know? has an Orthodox
2: background. Yeah.
0: yeah and he, and he actually
2: Greek. talks about uh, becoming born again because of his priest uh, yeah. insisting that this wasn't just a bunch of rituals and traditions, but it's a living encounter with the resurrected Christ.
0: Yeah. Well, he's a neat guy, and uh, I've interacted with him a little bit. He's actually reviewing my book on on Bombadil right now. So I'm saying lots of good things about you, Lou. That's a hint. You're supposed to say nice things about me, too. (laughs) 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 Anyway, uh, enough of that. So what what are we talking about? Okay. Well, in
2: Touchstone, I I was kind of scrolling because uh, I always find articles very interesting, and they kind of uh, spark topics or themes that we've touched on before, um, but uh, with, with you know, different, different perspectives or different contributions to those themes. So I found a really neat article called Detectives of Significance, um, and the subtitle is Sherlock Holmes, Umberto Eco, and the Search for Meaning.
0: Well, let's stop here. I want to see how many <laughs> Sherlock Holmes fans we have. Anybody here big Sherlock Holmes fan? Okay, me and three other people. Okay, well, now. maybe after today, you'll be... A, <laughs> you, how about, be how sure about like. Umberto Acto? Echo, Umberto Eco. Anybody here read Umberto? Uh, yeah, I figured you did. Maybe you've seen Maybe they've seen a film that they did of his book. Yeah, what yeah, was it, yes. the, In the Name of the Rose? Yeah, the Name of the Rose, right, right. And, that, and we're going to get into that here. Yeah.
2: So anyway, this is, uh, why is this topic important anyway, um, Detectives of Significance? Well, one of the things he's onto here, and he's going to be playing with this notion of detective and this notion of significance... Um, and you'll, you're going to really see how he ties this t- uh, together into a theological, um, theological, a theologically um, deep way of analyzing what a lot of these different characters in stories um, can contribute actually to our understanding of God and all things.
0: So you could read Sherlock Holmes theologically.
2: That's right. And you're, you'll see how, how he does it. And again, it doesn't mean it's always on the surface. And I think that's the key thing to take, hold on to. It's not always on the surface. Uh, surface. Um, so, so let me begin, and then maybe we can kind of fill in some gaps from there, and then this may all make a little more sense. But he's going to begin with kind of the interest of the Middle Ages in the medieval world. Um, and one of the things he says is, most of the greatest Christian minds took it for granted that the Bible wasn't supposed to be read in terms of a linear mathematical one-to-one correspondence between words and their meanings. Now, what in the world do we mean by that? Well, what he's saying here is that um, prior to the modern world, if you will, the way in which Christians were reading the Bible was filled with multiple layers of meaning, not just the historical meaning, for example not just the, the, the meaning that is the most literalistic. Didn't mean that that wasn't significant, oftentimes that level of meaning was very, it was, was the, the core de- meaning that determined everything else. But I'm gonna pass it kind of to Glenn to explain kind of what was going on in that world.
0: So we're talking univocity, equivocity, right? right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so um,
1: medieval biblical exegetes <laughs> believed that every verse, and in some cases you could even say every word in scripture had four different layers of meaning. Um, The first of these is the literal or historical. That's typically what we, when we read the Bible, that's what we see.
0: So most people Mm. just read it at that level. Right. But they argued that there were actually three
1: symbolic levels that went with that. You have an allegorical level, which involves typology and things like that. You've got a tropological level, which involves moral uh, Uh, conclusions based on the verse, and then you've got the anagogical, which is a spiritual meaning typically pointing toward eternal life, heaven, that kind of thing.
0: Now, I think we need to stop here and just say each of those uh, ways of reading the Bible, other people in the Bible use when talking about other parts of the Bible. In other words, this isn't just stuff that a bunch of medieval you know, theologians dreamed up or philosophers. We have the Apostle Paul doing all those things in the New Testament. Right,
1: and that's the thing that I find most curious about a lot of evangelicals who seem to think that the historical-literal approach is the only one that you can use, and yet when you look at Scripture, uh, the people who wrote the Bible didn't use that one. I mean, they did, but they
2: used others as well. Yeah, you look at some uses of of prophecy or, or, or verses, you're sometimes left wondering how in the world they came up. They definitely didn't come up t- with a literal in the sense that the modern world used literal. Right, right, right.
1: Yeah, so if you go to Galatians, where Paul goes right. into his whole thing with Hagar and, and uh, Sinai in and Arabia and all of that, this is, um, uh, this is completely foreign to the way we even think of, of approaching Scripture. And yet Paul thought it was very natural and almost
0: obvious. Yeah, yeah, and he almost like you guys all know this. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of the tone he has, right? Yeah. So, and I think that's important for us to kind of s- establish because uh, this particular approach uh, for reading scripture is a scriptural approach to reading scripture when we look for different levels of meaning. Right, and the the
1: bigger significance of this, which we'll get into in a future podcast, which will be taking place in a few hours, right, um, is that you can also look at the world this way. Yes. That the, the fact that the Bible has multiple levels of meaning um, beyond just the literal means that the physical world also has multiple levels of meaning beyond just science, Yeah. beyond mathematics, beyond those kinds of things.
0: So I I want to just say, because we have an, uh, an audience here, are you guys, do you guys hear us okay? We need to project a little more. Okay. Okay. Yeah, well, that's what we'll, we'll work at. So okay. you just... From the diaphragm, guys. From the diaphragm.
2: Pull, pull out, pull out that Southern Baptist. That...
0: <laughs> That's right. <laughs> That's right, you, you're ordained in the SBC. I, 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 yeah.
2: <laughs> I'm not even going to make a joke right now. Um. Yeah, so take
0: take us away, Tom. Take okay. Us away. And project like a Southern Baptist.
2: Project. And I, I wanted to make uh, two points related to this. Um, one is a lot of times. Reformed people in the Reformed tradition think that the Reformation was about bringing things a, a, away from the fourfold reading of Scripture to just a one level reading, the historical, the ordinary. So, what it says and literally means is what, what its meaning is. Um, but when you look at actually the practice of the magisterial reformers, Calvin, Luther, um, uh, a whole handful of Zwingli, First of all, one of the things you realize is they all didn't interpret the Bible the same way, even though they were all re- trying to read it as sola scriptura, as the final authority in faith and life. And you will see them come to radical different conclusions, not on essential things, but look at the difference between Lutherans and Reformed in terms of the sacraments. Both yeah, claim. they're
0: wrong, and we're right. That's right. That's yeah,
2: sure. <laughs> right. I, hear, I I see Zwingli with, uh, with his sword. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I mean, and, and there's plenty, plenty to go with there. And, and you actually can see um, some of the commentaries done by other reformers at that time are using the full fourfold sense as reformation um, interpreters of the Bible. Um, so I, I, I'm not gonna get yet to why, but I'm gonna give the example that Louis Marcos gives of, of this in action. And he's gonna actually take something from Dante's uh, work, um, and he, he uses the term, uh, he offers a semias, uh fourfold reading of the verse, when Israel out of Egypt came, right? So when you read that in the Bible, um, when Israel out of Egypt came, if you take this classic way of reading the Bible, the literal or historic level will refer to the Exodus. Um, it really the, happened. The, the event in Exodus that, that, that really happened in the way, way they're telling it. But then when you talk allegorically or typologically, it signifies how Christ frees us from sin, right? Just as the, the Exodus event. And there are even hints within the event, right? The lamb, the, the posting of the blood, the sy- symbolic uh, mm-hmm. aspects of it are pointing to these deeper dimensions. Um, Then it describes, uh, and when it talks about, um, tropologically, uh, sorry, it refers uh, to the moral dimensions. And then finally, it it talks about the conversion of the soul from its bondage to sin and the new freedom that we have in in Christ. Just like the liberation of the people of Israel to become a a free people under God's Um, Command, But anagogically, the spiritual end, it prophesies the moment when the human soul will leave behind the bodies long slavery to death and corruption and enter the promised land of heaven. And so, so a lot of times we'll read those historic dimensions of the Bible, sometimes in the Old Testament, and if we just leave it on the plain what happened, we don't really see... Don't really know. Well, why is this significant beyond what happened? Okay, we just keep telling the story of this particular law given in Leviticus, (laughs) Um, and we understand it. Maybe there's a principle there we can apply, but other than that, we really don't know. But then when we start to see the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament, we start to see its connectedness to Christ being the center, um, and when Christ is the center, it opens up a whole variety of levels of meaning. This world would have thought reading the Bible properly included all of that, it just didn't include that historic event yeah. that happened.
0: Now I think one of the things that would be helpful for folks to sort of, uh, you know, uh, keep in mind when, this, when we talk about this, is we're not just talking about, pe- you know, interpreters who are subjectively and sort of running amuck with s- some biblical material. The, 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 the folks who are thinking in these ways and trying to understand those scriptures you know, in these with these levels of meaning, believe that reality itself, which is what you brought out, Glenn, is multi-levelled. So there's there's actually a kind of uh, kind of refraction in reality itself. So there is a there is an objective truth, but it finds its expression in different dimensions, physical dimensions, spiritually, morally, and so forth. And it's because there's a real you know sorta of thing out there that we're we're talking about and it's not just you know in our heads we, we're not we're not engaging in something subjective. This is something right here as the IPA right here.
2: Yep. Thank you. And I was gonna do another stout. Another stout
0: concert. Now the folks in podcast land are cheering right now because <laughs> when we actually were in a pub every show that was a normal event, having the beer de- delivered. So I'm going to enjoy my beer for a little while while Tom or Glenn talks. I, actually, I'm going
1: to jump in here. One of the places, although I, I would agree with Tom in terms of the way the reformers began exegeting scripture, um, you do see at the same time people like Luther objecting in that you know what what uh, chris said about uh, this not isn't arbitrary it's not just stuff coming out of their own ma- uh, minds there's a there's a connection to reality luther thought that they were really pushing it
2: well, and
1: and so what luther does is he he argues that you need to use clearer scriptures to interpret unclear scriptures yeah. and to him the clearest thing in scripture was salvation through faith in christ so he adopts what's technically called a Christological or a soteriological hermeneutic. In other words, the principle is that all scripture speaks of that. So what that means is the New Testament is mostly literal. The Old Testament is mostly figurative because the Old Testament only talks about salvation in Christ through images and pictures.
0: Now, we can kind of play with that a little bit, though, and say we actually have biblical you know, material to work with. You know, Think about the road to Emmaus. There mm-hmm. we see Jesus talking to the disciples about well you clowns can't you see that everything in you know the scriptures and when he says scriptures he's referring to the old testament right speak about me you know and then he opens them and helps them see that all the way along everything from the exodus everything the prophets said talks about him and and i think that i mean the reformers were right to uh,
2: correct the overreach, um, and and I think again Luther. They, each one practiced a little different. There were other figures that that would would be more explicit about the fourfold, but you do see uh, a a move to um, govern the interpretation by something, some kind of biblical measure that didn't let it get out of hand. And I think ultimately at the end, yeah, Glenn mentioned justification by faith, but it, it, there is this Christological, this is Christ-centered. Move um, and and uh, but but I think one of the things that Marcos is pointing out is that Christ-centered move was not absent from the fourfold world either. Actually, it was it was at the heart of it. Um, but before he does that, he says um, he, he throws this out there. He goes, "Such a vigorous, layered engagement with the words and images of Scripture is not to be attempted for the faint of heart." In other words, um, it is danger. This is dangerous territory because it can go wrong if you just start reading you know, seeing everything um, in in a way that there's nothing to measure it by. He goes, but those who like their truth served up cold, simple, and systematic will likely find medieval readings of the Bible to be bizarre, excessive, even grotesque. But that is only because we, as post-enlightened modernists, have been kicked out of the medieval garden of allegory, symbol, and mysticism and now live east of Eden in a two-dimensional, four-square world stripped of awe wonder. And reverence. So maybe someone wants to bring it. Yeah, yeah, you know, I in. like
0: to think I like to get into that a little bit because I think most people don't think of themselves as, as uh, sort of the products of the enlightenment. They don't think of them they think of themselves as just kind of thinking purely. They don't think of themselves as sort of thinking through an interpretive grid. But they are thinking through an interpretive grid. An interpretive grid that they've adopted or maybe maybe absorbed kind of by osmosis because they were raised in a culture that was shaped by the Enlightenment. Now, there are a lot of things about the Enlightenment that we can look at and say, well, that was good, and that was good. But one of the things that we can also say was not so good is we've lost sort of the meaning of the world. So the meaning of the world was something that the medievals were really in touch with. You know, Lewis kind of gets at this, you know, and you've talked about this, Glenn, before. You know what everything is you know, how to use everything, but you don't know what any, anything means. Right. Yeah. You know, so you, you're really good at making things work the way you want them to work, but you have no clue what a tree means or anything like that. Right. And that's because the world, like Scripture,
1: is not just bare-bones, literal stuff. We think really one-dimensionally. Yeah. They thought four-dimensionally. Right. that And that applies equally to
0: the physical world as it does to Scripture. Now... Getting back to the rule of you know, how, you know, how do we go about this in a Christ-like way, Christ is what? He's the Word. He's the Lagos, the one through whom all things came into being. Now, if I was the one through whom all things came into being and the, and the blessedness of eternal life was something I wanted uh, those made in my image to enjoy, do you think I would leave clues throughout everything I made? To point people to me? Yes, (laughs) I would. And can we say the same for Christ?
1: You know, as a simple example, if you go to the transactions of the Royal Philosophical Society, which, although it's called philosophical, we would describe it as the premier scientific society of the 18th century, all the way through the 18th and into the 19th century, you will find people who are writing scientific treatises talking about things in the natural world, and when they're re- coming to their conclusions, they draw out of these things moral and spiritual lessons that we are to learn from these studies of the natural world that we would describe as science.
0: Now, we, and you know, that,
1: that is, to our minds, completely bizarre. Yeah. But it comes from a, a worldview that says that the world is integrated on multiple levels so that the physical world does point to the spiritual. It points to the moral. All of those kinds of things.
0: Yeah, we think, think about... Uh Jonathan Edwards. Right. His, our homeboy in New England. Yeah, yeah. His, his spider His, his spider thing, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Talk about that well, a little bit. He, yeah. Uh, well,
1: Edward, the first thing Edwards wrote as a teenager was a, a treatise on how spiders fly. Because it, it's observable that spiders float a, around on air currents. And he studied them and concluded that basically what they do is they let out a little balloon of silk. And this is what blows them along. And so, you know, he was explaining all of this in his treatise. And one of the things he noted is that when spider eggs hatch, you get boatloads of spiders. So what happens to all the excess spiders? Well, he says that since the prevailing winds blow from inland out to sea, many of these spiders must be blown out to sea on the winds where they fall into the water and become food for fish. And one of his conclusions is, well, first of all, Spiders, as much as they can enjoy anything, probably enjoy the feeling of floating in the air, flying. And what this means then is that, quote, the permissible recreation of the spiders is the means of their destruction.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'll drink to that. Well, one of uh, an example. <laughs> one, uh, one of the
2: things that Edwards is doing is, though, and, and this is something that it, it, he's a rarity in in the direction that a lot of the Protestant world went, is he is recapturing this the, the fullness of a, a full vision um, that is very analogous to to even though he's very stamped by the modern world and the Enlightenment, he is still connected to this deeply woven and connected world of meaning and the participation in all things in the orders of of divine meaning. Um, He's definitely of that. Now, one of the things is oftentimes Protestants, since we're right upon the celebration of, or the commemoration of the Reformation, um, often get seen as the disenchanters, the ones that are ridding the world of all these uh, excessive interpretations um, and bringing things down to what we would consider the most literal and most familiar the stuff that is as familiar as our living room, to the point that our churches are just like, like our country. living room. Yeah. Um, and, and so, but one of the things is, first of all, that's a reading of, of the Reformation, and it, I, it, I see it as very flawed. Um, I think it ended up becoming some of the path of it because of other issues, in particular the modern world that burst open. And the naturalism, the view that nature is its own kind of thing and has its own meaning apart from God and higher purposes. And so it begins reading the historical and, and the literal, I mean, naturalistically, rather than the way Edwards read it or, or um, earlier theologians did. And so what you see is you kind of go study a class on hermeneutics you get the tools you try to unpack and read a bunch of historical books on what the context was on merely a, a historical natural level um it's kind of like explain if we were going to explain um i'll give you an example we're here right now um, if i wanted to give a historical literal reading. meeting of us being here right now we would look at all the natural causes that led us here today some of us got in a car the car you know all the natural explanations but don't we think there's something more that brought us together than just the natural the beer <laughs> so there's your spiritual interpretation that's the right. spirits that's right but don't you think even more than the beer <laughs> so this is what we're getting at is that when we a lot of people approach reading the bible in its truest sense, as merely describing the historical on that first level, but not that there are other things going on um, and, and spiritually. And an, another thing that I think uh, happened happens is it is true that when the Reformation brought the centrality of Christ back to the salvation picture. It did get rid of certain kinds of mediation, certain other things bringing Christ to you, because Christ is the mediator himself. But this is no different than what the church, early church did when it dismantled all the gods. It dismantled them. There no there no longer needs to be um, Plotinus's hierarchy of mediation to bring the being of God, the presence of God to us. It comes in Christ, and so that hierarchy is flattened in some ways. But it is repatterned around Christ Pentacritor, as Christ as Lord. And so it is repatterned.
0: So we do It'd be great mm-hmm. to stop there and just think a little bit about that. I'm, I'm in the middle of reading Augustine's uh, City of God right now. And you know, books uh, eight through 10 is where Augustine's dealing with all this stuff. So yeah. he's addressing Porphyry. And yeah. Porphyry's. Uh, po- now, here's something that a lot of folks would miss. I unless you have uh, some acquaintance with, you know, uh, classical philosophy, you might assume that uh, just because you're wrong at one point, you're wrong about everything. I think sometimes we kind of treat uh, ancient thinkers in that manner. If he says something silly here, then something, there's nothing else that the guy says that's worthwhile. So Pophyry believed that our true uh, good is found in God alone, one God alone. The question that he that he had was how do we have access to that God? That was the question. So this is a guy who was like third, fourth century, rejected the Christian faith, but had that right. What he what he proposed was that these demonic powers, these intermediary spirits in the, air, in, the, yeah. in, the in the air, were uh, mediating,
2: yeah. you
0: know, the the grace of the one true God, and that by praying to them they could uh, be a means by which you know worshipers could have access to eternal life now we have
1: to be careful here the word demonic does not mean here what it means to us
0: that's right yeah basically what we're talking about in the the first century in in antiquity is they didn't think of these necessarily as fallen angels they were more like spirits who just were eternal because their 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 bodies were eternal but they were very much like us in terms of their passions and desires and so forth uh, but anyway, you know Augustine just completely decimates Porphyry over the course of like a you know the, the tenth chapter and then presents Christ as the only way to God. but what Porphyry had right was that eternal life can only be found in the one true God now this is something that's lost in lots of folks yes it is he, he yeah he hadn 't read the old testament yeah, that 's right <laughs> he wasn't a Jew he, he, he was a he was a he was a, in the classical world just a a, Platon, a, 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 and a platonic philosopher yeah and there were a lot of these guys and so they would agree about certain things and and this is the surprise for a lot of folks many Platonists believed that there was only one God yeah. yeah and that he was uh, good yeah. that he was uh, morally perfect and that salvation would, could only be found in him.
1: Yeah, the irony is that in the early centuries of the church, at least among the educated, the conflict wasn't between polytheism and monotheism. It was between two competing visions of monotheism.
2: That's right,
0: yeah. yeah. And according to the Platonists, the problem with the Christian, go- the pr- problem with the gospel was the physical body that's of Jesus. That's right.
2: That was the issue. They, that, <laughs> that was the was very the centerpiece of, right. of the way. And that's, the, that's what I was getting at, that mediation. Changed everything.
1: Yeah. Now, I, I want to throw in a, uh, a cheap shot here. Um, I think some of the problem comes up, actually, in the Reformed world. Okay. Um, and the reason is because... there's it's some
0: dangerous territory now.
1: Yeah. There, a, um, <laughs> I see glasses full, shaking. <laughs> full, 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 my, my motto in life has really been, fools rushing where angels fear to tread. But, but um, what, what happens in the Reformed world, really starting with Zwingli is that Zwingli is so upset in many ways by all of the crud that had built up around Christianity that what he wanted to do was return to a true word-centered faith. So he wanted to center everything on the preaching of the gospel, which is a a great thing in principle. But what that meant is remove the statues, remove the stained glass windows, remove the church organs, uh, sing only uh, psalms a cappella, and get rid of anything that might distract someone from listening to the preached Word. That's also why he tends to de-emphasize, compared to other Reformers, the Lord's Supper, because it isn't directly connected to the preaching of the Word. So what happens with him is you are actually moving away from what I would argue is a fully embodied faith and moving toward a more rationalistic approach to faith based entirely on the word. And then Zwingli's ideas, or at least his practices, tend to be picked up by a lot of other Reformed traditions. So that when you get to the Puritans, their big thing was biblical exegesis, and this again is moving away from that fourfold idea, it's biblic it's plain
2: and simple biblical exegesis and what in what the the irony is it's indebted to the parts of plato that classic christianity rejected because of the incarnation yeah that's right <laughs> and so it is this is the pure biblicism that they can have some kind of pure doctrine without the use of any terminology or any ideas outside of uh, of of the bible is is a byproduct of that kind of um, idealism that comes from uh, uh, the kind of Platonism that nothing else can mediate. Now, I, I want to I, I tie it back, and maybe sure. I, this will get back to the next point. A good way of thinking about this, if you've kind of lost track about what we're talking about, if, for those of you who remember Romans, um, one, I, I mention it all the time on the show, where um, the, the visible things attest to the invisible attributes of God, right? So, so creation see, itself. So we
0: can see the invisible through the visible. Through the
2: visible. In other words, the the whole point of creation is not just creation; it's creation as an image bearer or reflector of the Creator. The, it it shares. There's nothing about the creation that um, ex, it not only explains itself, um, but explain, uh, explains its beauty, goodness, truth, and everything else. These things are, are limited, but they point to something beyond that, which has to be a source, and, you know, that is infinite in power and everything else. In other words, the finite, limited creation attests to the fact that it isn't self-sufficient, and every beautiful and good thing about it owes itself to something that has to be its source. And so Paul says we should have been moved to gratitude and thanksgiving, knowing we owe everything to this God, um, but instead we, we stifled it, we didn't listen to this knowledge, instead we, our minds were darkened, our hearts were perverted, and our loves got disoriented, right? We were given over. Um, but the good news, as he says later, thanks be to God in Christ, There's the power of God and the wisdom of God is revealed afresh in Christ. But what is it that Paul later will teach about Christ? That he fills all things. And this is the place at which he has now returned to that creation, filled it with his resurrected life, and now it has been brought back to being able to reflect again, as it's oriented to him the right way, all those levels of meaning beyond merely just the creation
0: itself. Yeah, I th- you know, there are a couple of things that, I th- that come to mind as I, as I think about what you just uh, said, Tom. One is, you know, over the years as a pastor, you know, I'll particularly uh, interact with guys who maybe are outdoorsmen, and they'll say something to me along the lines of, well, I don't need to go to church. Because I'm, I feel closer to God when I'm out in the woods, you know, sitting in a tree stand waiting for a deer, that kind of thing. And, and I can't argue with that in one, in one respect, because there is something that's right about what they're saying. You know, yes, the, the creation is suffused with the glory of God. In yeah. other words, it, it, it attests to its creator. It gives, it refers people to the creator. Now, usually what I, what I try to do at that point when I'm talking to those guys is say, well, you know, we're made in the image of God and, and there are certain things that God is saying through people yeah. <laughs> and being with people, and you, you are a people. <laughs> you need to be with some people and you need to worship with them uh, and uh, express to God you know, your gratitude for all the things that he's done for us. And uh, he's pleased when his people get together. You know, Just think about it like a father a father likes or a mother likes when her children or his children gather together to say happy birthday or to do something for for him or her and, and, it's, and it's the same it's the same thing is uh, i think true when it comes to the love that we have for the saints yeah. when we gather together there's something about that That's that pleases right. god now the other the other part of this that i think is worth kind of considering is the fact that Uh, You know, when we think about uh, the fact that everything has its origin in God, the physical world, spiritual unseen realities, everything has its origin in God. Um, When we lose sight of our, you know, we lose sight of the unseen being attested to through the seen, then what do we use, uh, how do we explain things that we can't see but seem to have... um, a relationship to the things we can. What I'm thinking about in particular is Darwinism and something like love. So if, if you're a materialist and you don't have God, you can't see God in the, in the physical world, then you're going to explain something uh, uh, that you can't see, you know, like love, <laughs> through uh, yeah. kind of a materialist, uh, godless lens. So if you do that, what does love mean? Well, love just simply means propagating the species. Yeah, yeah. Or it simply means you need people in your life to help you survive.
2: Yeah, some, something some, related to survival yeah, some,
0: and, and- Yeah, and, something like that. And we all know that's not what love is about because there are people who, for the sake of love, give their lives to other people, not, a, not because, in their, in their minds, because they're trying to help Further their gene, <laughs> yeah, that's right. The, the survival of their genes, uh, yeah, you know. But because it's just simply, the, they love this person.
2: Yeah, they see it as nothing more than the expression of a set of forces that are irrational that we happen to be participating in.
0: So we, are, I think, we have a radical choice: either we we see the connection of all physical, visible things to God, and it speaks yeah. of God, or nothing speaks of God.
2: And right here, and this is gonna tie us right back to the medieval view, right here is what gets restored in Christ. And see, I think we haven't in the modern reform world emphasized that enough. We wanna talk, start talking about creation again, right? All of a sudden creation's significant, not just redemption, but creation now. And we're talking about the creation mandates, we're talking about the political and the, and the social and the historical. But then we're starting to think of those things only on one plane of meaning again. And I think the, in what the medievals understood, whether they got the emphasis right all the time or not, uh, it, it, that's, a, that's a whole different issue, and I think a lot of what the Reformation was emphasizing needs to be emphasized. But what, what, um, what was connected here and what they had a strong confidence in is that the natural created world was now filled with Christ, the Logos, again because of the Gospel and the resurrection. And just think of it this way. I mean, when you read the Bible, these things are related to the creaturely. Resurrection, transfiguration, glorification. You see how these things are connected? These things, and so what uh, Marcos is saying is that the medievals, um, they discern those connections messages. and so, messages. Um, and so they ultimately saw not only the Bible but ultimately, every constellation, every line of poetry, and every blade of grass caught up in that meaning world.
0: Now, now here's, some, here's something that maybe some of the people who have been listening to this show and know that uh, we're supposed to be talking about Sherlock Holmes <laughs> are asking, how does this relate to Sherlock Holmes? What's, what's going on with Sherlock Holmes? Well, let me, let me propose some, uh, some, some way to proceed here, that, and, and you guys obviously can run with it. But isn't Sherlock Holmes kind of the embodiment in fiction of this sort of rational, deductive, one-level approach to, to reality? Yes.
2: And and I think that's part of what his, his article is. Now, before he gets to Sherlock Holmes, he wants to talk about the way that there is, in this medieval vision, a strong emphasis on the whole of creation yearning for God. The creation, the desire of the nations, right? Um, the desire of creation for its creator. Now... In the Reformed world, in the Protestant world, we also want to talk about that desire run the wrong direction. That it's a desire, as Calvin would say, that gives us, it should have oriented us towards seeking God truthfully, but instead it now has become an idol factory. Um, we've now, um, it, it's something that's, uh, you know, we have a seed of religion, we have this desire for God, but it's so distorted that all it does is, is in Calvin's language, produce nothing but I- idols and things we need to get, get away from. Um, but Calvin is more, uh, I think, nuanced moments also would start to talk about ways in which um, there were certain things that were, were able to be discerned even by the fallen that um, basically left the fallen puzzled and stuck. Um, and I think this is what he's onto to here is that there, there is, um, the way he's talking about it is, and he brings in uh, Umberto Eco, um, and I don't know uh, our, if our audience would be familiar with Echo, but Echo was a, um, a, a sort of a philosopher and a literary figure. Yeah, he's
0: one of these Renaissance guys.
2: Renaissance guys, and um, and he he wrote a famous book, Art and the Beauty in the Middle Ages, um, and then, of course, his, he brought it to the popular
0: level in a book called In the Name of the Rose. Well, let's just stop there. Name of the Rose, this is referring to Shakespeare, Juliet, talking about... Romeo, and she says, uh, a rose by any other name would smell as sweet. So the name of the rose. Now, the idea is that, is that the name and the reality are disconnected. Yep. So we have the sign and we have the signified, and there's a, the, the implication is that there's kind of an arbitrary relationship between the two. Now, we've talked about that in a lot of places, but actually in that story, she's not talking about that you know, sort of philosophical problem, you know, that she's talking about his last name. (laughs) You know, he belongs to a family that her family is at war with. And she's saying, I fall in love with this guy, and he's got the wrong name, uh, but the rose smells sweet. That's the implication. Yeah, it's worth noting that if you've seen the movie, they
1: completely changed that. Okay. And... I won't explain how, but it's important to note that in the beginning of it, the, the movie describes itself as, I quote, a palimpsest of Umberto Eco's novel. Huh. Now, a palimpsest is something that medievals or medieval scholars are very familiar with. What they would do, because parchment was expensive, what they would do is they would take a piece of parchment that was written on that they didn't need anymore, they would scrape the text off of it, and then write something new over it. And when you put them under uh, in, uh, ultraviolet
0: light, you can read the, the, old, and, the and old what, text. And what we so discovered what, today is that some of the stuff that was, like, written over was more valuable. <laughs> right. But,
1: but describing it as a palimpsest right. of Umberto Eco's novel means that they scraped off the text of the novel and wrote something else over it. Yeah,
2: right. <laughs> and, and so and one of the things that uh, Eco is onto, to, and, and, and the article is worth reading in more detail to kind of get the, the, the nuance of it, but he's really attracted to the way in which, especially in the medieval world, this deeper level of meaning and symbols um, are tied so much to this yearning for these kind of transcendental things, truth, beauty, and, and goodness.
0: Now, let me, let me just interrupt here, Tom, and, and sort of bring back Sherlock. Yep. Okay, so if you are uh, a fan of Sherlock Holmes, and you've actually read Arthur Conan Doyle's books, short stories his novels you know that uh, in many respects Sherlock is a uh, tragic figure in other words he's a genius when it comes to this particular thing detection and he's using the, you know a very scientific approach to the art of detection but he's an unhappy guy he retreats yeah. uh, in, or he sort of a, Withdraws into music. He's a musician. He uh, is a an addict. He, he takes. He's, he uses cocaine. Yeah. Uh, there are there are a few really remarkable stories in the body of work. You know the short stories of of, of Doyle with regard to Sherlock's addictions and or addiction. And why? Why is he doing it? It's because Sherlock. Uh, is in a sense suffering from kind of the malaise that modern people, generally speaking, suffer because they only understand reality at one level. He, yeah, he
2: was very suspicious, the way uh, uh, Marcus was talking. He's very suspicious of anything um, that wasn't the, the abstract, the calculated, the, the naturalistic, the rational explanation. Um, so much so, he gives the example that Watson, the sidekick of Holmes, when he talks about using, I mean, when he talks about getting married, um, Holmes reacts and said, oh, no, how could you do that? You're going to ups- you're going to bias your judgment. Yeah. You know, right. so if you have any romantic impact on your rationality, you're going to distort seeing reality for what it is. And yet, this is what Marcus points in this attraction to cocaine, as it's described in the the Sherlock Holmes stories, um, shows that it's almost functioning as something romantic in the sense that it's trying to find meaning and, and delight where the cal- cold, calculatable, uh, materialistic reading of things didn't didn't fix it. And he goes through this really rich web of showing that what you have going on here is that you have a desire for God and more that isn't answerable b- to, by this flat view of reality, this naturalistic explanation. So, we-
0: so if we were to bring it into our contemporary world, a person like Richard Dawkins, for example, yeah. He would be kind of Sherlock. Yeah. You know, he's, he's, he's living at sort of a surface level. Uh, he, you almost, when you, like, when I, when I, when I see, you know, uh, Dawkins, uh, when I hear him speak, he's one of the new atheists, you know, he's uh, a, a fellow that people maybe are familiar with because of, you know, books he's written, like The Blind Watchmaker or something like that. <laughs> this is a guy that I don't want to, I, I would never want to be. Now, now think about it that way. Would you want to be Richard Dawkins? <laughs> no, I, at least i wouldn't want to be I would say I could not live in his mind. it's so desiccated, it's so barren it's so it's a desert, and uh, he only is able to sort of live uh, you know the, his kind of his passion in life is uh, I think in a strange sort of way evidence of, of his inner poverty his, his, his passion to disprove the existence of God, demonstrates his deep longing for God.
2: Yeah, this is that This is that kind of a twist. It's a, it's a running from, even though it shows that one is made in the imago and can't escape it. And this is why, I mean, he puts, uh, Marcus puts it, he goes, for Sherlock Holmes, he goes, a mundane one-dimensional reality is as prosaic, as numbing as a biblical verse with only a simple literal meaning would be to the medieval allegorist. In other words it would be that empty. It would be have you longing for more. What else than just a flat historical explanation for this or natural explanation of this? And so what he says is, he, he goes, um, Sherlock Holmes, this is where the title comes in, is not so much a detective as he is a monk without a monastery.
0: Yes, that's the He's thing. a
2: biblical exegete who can no longer see the New Testament prefigured in the old, a theologian who has lost touch with God. Yeah, that's rich. Sure. It, it's very rich, and, and I, think, I think one of the big takeaways, I love detective stories, mm-hmm. almost to the point where I drive my uh, wife nuts with those are the only series I'll watch. <laughs> and
0: and she's nodding back there. But, but, she's saying, yes, it but drives one of, me nuts.
2: <laughs> but one of, one of the fascinating things about it he mentions here is he goes, Umberto Eco wanted to create his medieval um, um, story. Um, in such a way to communicate these richer things of meaning. So he adopts almost the characters of Holmes and Watson, Watson and right. gives them new interpretation. Yeah, what's, what's the name of this?
0: Uh, the, the, the protagonist? Uh, William of Baskerville. Baskerville. Now, anyone who knows Holmes knows Baskerville is an important name in the Holmes you know, kind of... But he vibe. has this
2: great line. He says, the reason Echo took a detective story is it's because the most metaphysical and philosophical law forms.
0: You know, that's fascinating because you know, when we think about different Christians who have written detective fiction, you know, we think about someone like uh, uh, Chesterton with the Father Brown mysteries. You know, we think yeah. about like uh, Dorothy Sayers. Dorothy Sayers, right? So, you know, some of you know P.D. James. You know, P.D. James was a very you know strong believer. So. Uh, there's something about the detective, genre, you know, detective fiction, <laughs> fiction genre that I think lends itself. Now we have food being delivered, mine, so if you oh, hear sorry, Tom mine,
2: smacking his lips, mine was the Cubana. Sorry. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's trying to make sure he gets the food that he there, wants, yeah, and his you. wife gets the food that she wants. <laughs> All right. Sorry. So anyway, so that lip smacking goodness about Tom is about to enjoy here. <laughs> I apologize in advance. <laughs> anyway, take it away, Tom, or maybe Glenn, because Tom's mouth is full. No, Glenn's mouth is full, so I should keep talking. <laughs> okay, so, like, when I think about Sherlock Holmes, there's a lot about Sherlock that I really like. I've read all the, the, the stories. I've read all the, you know, Father Brown mysteries. I've read Dorothy Sayers, so uh, Peter Wimsey, you know, and, and I've read all of those. Uh, there's something a lot, there's a lot of, you know, you, you have a, a, a lot to, there's a lot to enjoy in a good detective story, but there's a lot going on I think in a good story, that I think reflects certain aspects of the Christian faith and reality. You know, as we as we encounter it. Anyway, so Thomas stopped chewing, and I'm sure he's ready to, st- to jump well, back in. <laughs> well, this kind of
2: starts to bring it into the kind of the, the, the closing direction of his article, and he talks about something called
0: the metaphysical shutter.
2: I think this is kind of fascinating. It's a postscript that Glenn was uh, and I were talking about before we we started recording. And it he, he was talking in some ways um, that uh, Echo said, since I wanted you to feel as pleasurable the one thing that frightens us, namely the metaphysical shudder, I had only to choose the most metaphysical and philosophical, the detective novel.
0: So we're, when we say shutter, we're not talking about shutters on a
2: window, we're talking about shutters and shaking. Because it gives us this numinous, there's a beauty and a ter- something terrible all at once, he thinks that the detective story embodies, for example. Why? What does a detective do? Well, they need to solve something. They need to use calculated ways of thinking about it because there is an order of the world. But when they do that, um, they they they're kind of also recognizing that there's something broken that's why they're doing the whole work to begin with the yes. detective story and everything else there's, so a, that, crime. there's, there's a, a crime there's a crime so this is what he means by there's there there's a, a real profundity in the detective story that that is kind of in the background i mean if you watch good detective stories you tend to see them they're often you know at least the modern ones if you watch shows they tend to be all they have a lot of internal conflict, but they're obsessed about the work, kind of like Sherlock Holmes. They have to solve the crime. Their families are wrecked. Everything else is wrecked, but they have to solve the crime. And yet there is this kind of puzzle going on there. Why are they so intent on recognizing that there is an order that has to be fixed by, by bringing some kind of resolve to it, and yet there is this terror involved in it because it's broken? And, and so, and this is one of the things he gets to with Echo. He says Echo in his story is really reading a lot of himself into it. But at the end of the day, Echo cannot, he, he abandons this as, and he even develops a, a, a something in the story in which the character comes to a conclusion after he solves the case that he got, he, he ended up solving the case by going all these circuitous routes that he almost abandoned the natural order to come to it. And one of the things Marcus is pointing out is no, no he didn't um what happens is is when you don't recognize the eternal logos the word which the medievals would recognize um, that's when you end up where echo does in unbelief and and having to basically say there's an order there there's there's terror there because it's broken, but this is just yeah well this meaningless. is meaningless I
0: think what I, what I think this does is uh, it helps to bring to the surface the reason why say. Well, our cultured elites are reticent or even uh, recoil from the Christian, dealing with Christian faith honestly. Because what, what, they're, what they're doing is they know the price. I think they understand the implications. They understand that if I, if I see that an order uh, implies an order giver, that you've got to have these two things working together, something uh, is qu- required of me. As a as a creature, but if there's some way that I can explain away the order, mm-hmm. or find some sort of expl- explanation in the in the order of things, which would be Darwinism, for example, then it relieves me of of the moral, uh, you know, obligation to conform myself to reality. They don't want that.
1: Yeah, and it's worth noting that the specific problem in the name of the rose is that although William of Baskerville solves the crimes, he went about it in completely the wrong way. He made wrong assumptions. He thought wrong things about what was going on. He made connections that weren't really there. He was following all of the things that he saw, uh, the signs and symbols that the world was pointing toward. He tried following all of those. He came to the right conclusion, but he got there using completely faulty assumptions.
0: And this is why
1: the cultured elites like Umberto Eco. Mm-hmm. Right. And right. that, that I think is significant because what it points to is the idea that the medievals to Echo were onto something, but they took it in completely the wrong direction.
0: Yeah. So what we have right now is I think in, you know, our conversation here, the sort of multifaceted and really challenging matter of how, what, you know, how do we sort of address Uh, the modern world that we find ourselves in. So the cultured elites will celebrate someone like Umberto Eco or Kafka or anybody else who's able to sort of, uh, through his uh, God-given abilities, make it seem like there's no God. (laughs) You know, anybody like that is celebrated. And anyone like a, a Tolkien or a Lewis, for example, whose intellectual capacity is as great, if not greater, is rejected. Yeah, and bringing Holmes back into this, the cocaine
1: habit is really the key in a lot of ways. Although he does note that Holmes at times, he describes him as almost like a bloodhound on a scent. His entire body is involved, not just his mind. So he's embodied in a way that he himself doesn't recognize in his pursuits. Hmm. And further, the cocaine habit points to the fact that he cannot live in the bare mundane world. He's got to have something that is occupying his mind that is engaging him that is exciting him because otherwise the world is unbearable he is right. looking for significance
0: right right yeah
2: and and he's he's recognizing though in even what he's looking at that that, that this drive this obsession is is this yearning gone in a distorted direction that right. there that, that there is as he talked about earlier there is there is there is a beauty in the beautiful thing that pushes you to want the beauty itself, not just the the, the the that which gave you a taste of it.
0: You know, I think was you know kind of maybe maybe we should, this is one mm-hmm. way we could kind of bring this to a conclusion. We're getting to that point where we ought to land the plane. <laughs> but uh, I've been Do- on planes all day. That's, <laughs> That's not what I want to hear. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, you, you're glad that you've landed. I am glad to be landed. <laughs> so uh, Doyle, <laughs> Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was not Sherlock Holmes. He was the author who created the character Sherlock Holmes. I remember when I was younger I thought Sherlock Holmes was a historical figure I thought he was real <laughs> Anyway so, so uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle created Sherlock Holmes but Doyle himself was a spiritualist mm-hmm. He 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 longed for the the very things that his his most famous character dismissed as being impossible That's- So you know he was he was a fairy hunter you know he he actually tried to to, to prove that there really were fairies yeah. and he went into all sorts of comical and ridiculous and marcus uh, tells the
2: story at the end I, I don't know he says he 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 talks to the sun i mean there's an interview yes with the that's son. right that's right and he they asked that was the, very good they yeah. asked the sun well why was he into spiritualism this was after the first world and War. not the church that's right and he had originally kind of you know uh, kind of moved in that direction but it was the liberal theology of the protestant
0: church and the church as a whole yeah, now this is news to many of our folks. At the turn of the twentieth century, when you're moving from the nineteenth the twentieth century, it wasn't all sort of, you know, sort of like uh, strawberries and cream right. in the in the Protestant world. You might you might think it was, oh, it was because yeah. of all the things that maybe you've you've associated with maybe your your childhood and your parents and the things you've been told. But liberal theology goes way back into the nineteenth century.
2: That's right, and 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 you know quite quite a bit earlier the the roots but one of the things he talks about is it was so vacuous and answered nothing because it had basically reduced christianity to a wholly this worldly phenomena whose references to reality were nothing more than the mundane detached from any larger um transcendental vision grounded in the eternal christ become flesh and so because of this um Doyle was so so bored with it he was looking for, as many were I mean, I remember Karl Barth talking about the Enlightenment era, he said a lot of people think of it as a time of moving towards rationality, it was one of the most superstitious times in history, I mean you have the, you know, the Masons uh, start to develop, Mozart hanging out with the Masons, you have, you have all these you know, seance groups and stuff, but it was similar because the, and, and you kind of see it today, what, what ends up happening because this rich spiritual traditions of classic Christianity have been gutted and theology as well. People are, you know, evangelicals spend most of their spiritual time at the yoga place, <laughs> sure. you know, getting their stretches yeah. in, you know. sure. But, I mean, it's, that's, that's sort of why uh, Doyle found that completely thin.
0: Yeah, yeah. That's, I guess maybe that's, that's the place to stop. I mean, I, I think that what, we, what we're presented with is uh, either we recover this richer understanding of, of creation uh, and scripture... Uh, or we find ourselves unwittingly uh, kind of uh, encouraging people to look elsewhere for the things that they're longing for. What are they longing for? They're looking for significance, they're longing for reality. Uh, They're not just, you know, there are obviously many things that the scientific method can bring to the surface that are worth celebrating and worth, uh, you know, learning but meaning isn't one of those things.
2: And, and I think right at the heart of it is, I think, uh, and, and, and Marcus hits it right on the nose, is the incarnation. It is the, the eternal God-made flesh where both of these things are brought together in, in unity and distinction in such a way that it starts to it starts to become the ground and center of all of these ways of understanding. The whole of creation is not merely its sense, experience, interpretation, but that there is something fundamentally more profound going on that doesn't doesn't leave us with having to go where Sherlock Holmes goes.
0: Yeah, right. Yeah, the opium den. <laughs> That's right. Anyway, well, thanks a lot for listening to the, the uh, Theology podcast. We really appreciate your interest and support. Um, as I noted at the beginning of the show, there are people who listen to us from all over the world, people in Asia, people in South America, people in uh, you know Australia and Africa, and we're really very grateful. Even for the folks in the United States, we have people <laughs> from the Philippines, and we, I've seen, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah. But uh, thank you for your interest in the show. Please share, uh, you know, the, the the show with other folks that you know. And if you have the time and you in the inclination, please. Uh, you know, let the world know on Apple, you know, podcasts or on Spotify or wherever you listen to the show uh, about your thoughts on, on the show and uh, give us a good rating, however they do it there. And uh, uh, we're also grateful for the many people who give us money on a regular basis. We, and, that, and there are a lot of folks who do that. And we never ask. We just thank. You know, we don't, we don't try to twist any arms or tell you that the world's about to fall apart unless you give us money.
2: So, a quick quick question. Um, yeah. Maybe I know mean, we'll post it, but uh, tell where we are right now, and I wanted to thank everyone for yeah, coming yeah. to Yeah, We're join. in Battleground,
0: Washington at Northwood's Public House, and uh, we've just uh, had a show in front of a bunch of folks who actually paid some money to be with us, and we're glad for that. And we're going to have another show later today, and then another show after that at another location at the Westminster Presbyterian Church. And that's just the beginning of our <laughs> Pacific Northwest We're just getting tour. getting warm, though. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Anyway, well, uh, that's all for now. Thanks a lot. Bye bye. Bye now. Say bye, everybody. <laughs>